this evening at uh, First Baptist Church. I uh, know that uh, there are lots of people that are watching online. We want to welcome you as well. Uh, tonight we are going to begin, um, begin looking at Genesis chapter 1. Uh, but as, it's, as it is our custom, we are going to, uh, we're going to go to the Lord in prayer first. Uh, we have several prayer requests in our church, and many of you have contacted the office this week to uh, share prayer requests and, and things that you want us to be praying for. Rest assured that uh, before the camera got turned on, your names were called, uh, and we're going to be praying for you, and we're going to be praying for those that are around you and your loved ones as well. Uh, if you have prayer requests that you'd like us to pray for, just you can send them to the office through email, phone call. You can uh, just get them to us, and we would love to have the church be praying praying for, for you and your family or for whatever it is that's going on in your life at this time. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's ask Him to bless our time together, uh, bless those who are in need of uh, several different things uh, as well, and uh, to pray for our community and our country in the midst of this, um, this uh, time that we're in. Father, we love you, God, and we, we come before you just, uh, Lord, just awestruck in who you are. Lord, we take this moment, this, this time to just quieten our hearts and our minds, God, and just to focus upon you. Lord, we ask that you would push away the things uh, that are in our minds right now, the things that we have to do this week, the, the bills that are, came in the mail yesterday, the, the troubles that are, are going on uh, at home or in families, God, the things that are, we're worried about with the country and our community. God, we just pray that you would help us lay all of that aside tonight and just to focus on you. And God, just to hear your word for what you would speak to us. God, we, we don't have the answers to the, all the problems in the world. We don't have the answers to the problems in our country. We don't have the answers to, most of the time, the problems in our own families, in our own, in our own lives. But we know that you do. And so, God, we just call out to you earnestly tonight that you would, that you would speak to us. Because it is only your voice and your presence, it is only your word that can guide us uh, according to your will. And so, Father, we, we extend our hearts and our minds to you tonight, just asking you, to, asking you to show us what you'd have us to know, to speak to us. Father, we pray for the several families in our church that are, are going through difficult times. The young man who is in the hospital, God, we pray that you would bring healing to him and that very soon that he would be able to go home. Lord, we thank you for bringing him as far as you have, God, and taking care of him in a dangerous situation. And God, we pray that his recovery would continue and that he would uh, return to health and return to us here at the church and return to his family. Father, we pray for the, the young lady who was flown to Kansas City. We ask that you would watch over her and that you would bring healing into her life. God, we know that uh, it's a very serious situation, Lord, and we don't know, uh, as so, is so often, what to pray for, Father. But we pray that you would heal her and that you would give the doctors wisdom and knowledge for their uh, don't know what to do. God, we pray that you would be with that family, God, and that you would give them strength and that you would show them uh, the hope that we, that we have in you. Uh, God, and we just pray for a good result. Lord, we ask that you would uh, also be with a family that's lost a loved one this week. Lord, we, we pray that you would give them strength in the midst of this and that you would um, give them the comfort that only you can give when they go through such a thing. Lord, there's many things we could say, many, many platitudes, many comforting words, even true words that we could say, God, but it rarely takes away the pain that they're going through. Lord, only you can do that. 
So God, we pray that your spirit would fall upon them and that you would, that you would watch over them. Lord, we ask tonight that you would be with us as we, um, as we glean what we can from your word. The only way we can do this, God, is if your spirit comes. Lord, the only way we can hear your voice is if you speak. God, we're, we don't want an academic exercise. We don't want to uh, just learn new facts. We want to hear your voice. We want to be changed by you. So God, we thank you so much. Lord, we also pray for a gentleman in our church who is um, who's not doing well. Lord, we ask that you would be with him and his wife uh, so dear to our church family, God, as they struggle through this time. We pray, God, that you would bless them and that your will would be done. Lord, we love you, and we ask you to be with us as we talk about your word tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we are going to start Genesis tonight. And I want to warn you about Genesis. It's going to take a long time. <laughs> it's going to take, a, it will be a, at least a year that we will be going through Genesis. It will be at least a year because this book is, all of God's word is important. All of God's word is, um, is God's word. And it deserves, the, it deserves the respect that it deserves as God's word. But this book in particular is so important because this book lays the foundation for everything that comes after it. Everything that you see in the 65 books that are, that are after Genesis um, are, are going to be uh, building upon the foundation that Genesis lays. In the first three chapters, we have the foundation for the gospel. We have the foundation laid for the covenants of God. We have the foundation laid for, uh, for what it means for man to be in the image of God. And, and that's so important today as we talk about all these things that are going on about man being made in the image of God. It, the foundation of it's right here in these first two or three chapters of Genesis. We're going to talk about human sexuality and the great huge uh, moral debate that's raging right now uh, that we wouldn't even be having 35 years ago. We're having today on all kinds of things. Um, the, the foundation for marriage is right here in chapters 1 and 2. The foundation for human sexuality, what God expects, what God commands, is right here in these verses. And so, um, and so what we're going to see is in chapters 1, 2, and 3, we're going to go really slow. Once we hit chapter 4, we're going to take off and go a lot, lot faster. So, but these first three chapters are so important. I, I, I said that three times, but I, I cannot stress to you how important it is that you understand what God is saying in these first three chapters because it informs everything else. It informs, uh, it informs the prophets. It informs the rest of the law that we see in, in the, the first five books of Moses. It informs the gospel. It informs the New Testament. On every page of the New Testament, you will find a quote from the Old Testament. And many of them are from, from, from Genesis. Jesus himself quoted Genesis several, several times. So what I want you to hear from me for the last three months, or, or I guess how long will we be back? We've been back a month, month and a half, however long we've been back. We've been live streaming and there's, there's usually several people that are watching on, on live stream and uh, we want to, uh, we want to uh, make sure they're part of the discussion as well. But for the last, I don't know how long, most of the time I just stood up here and I told you, I, it's like preaching. I just preached it to you and then we went home. You know, maybe ask a few questions at the end. Uh, in this, what I want to do is I want you to stop me 
I want you to raise your hand. I want you to, I want you to ask a question because it will do no good if we go through this, this text and we start talking about these things. It'll do no good if you walk out of here saying, I just still didn't understand what that meant. I still didn't understand what he was talking about. So I want you to stop me if any question comes into your mind or if you have any question about a verse or a, an interpretation of a verse or, or things that you've heard. I want you to stop me and I want us to talk about it. Um, because it is so important that you understand the book of Genesis. So important. Everything else hinges upon it. If you were to take the book of Genesis out of the Bible, uh, first of all, you'd be a heretic. But if you did do that, the Bible wouldn't make sense. So much stuff is, is so many of the things that we read are just based in what we see in this first part. Who, who, was, uh, who was the Bible? Who was the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible? Who, who was that written by? Anybody know? Moses. Everybody says Moses. That's great. Does anybody not believe it was Moses? Great. You're all Christian. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That's absolutely true. Now, if you, if you send your children off to seminary, they're going to learn that Moses didn't write the Bible. They're going to learn this theory called the Graf-Wellhausen theory, and it's just... The dudes that came up with it, they call it the JEPD theory. And basically, simplifying it very much for you guys, what it says is that Genesis through uh, uh, Leviticus was, or through Deuteronomy, was written during the exile, not during the time of Moses. And it was basically cobbled together from four or five different sources. Uh, that, before we even get started, let me make sure that you understand that's just bull. That's just nonsense. Uh, and if that is true, which is not true, but if it was, then the whole Bible would be untrustworthy. I wrote down these verses just, and you don't have to remember these, I just wanted to read. Um, Jesus and Paul and several people in Acts, all of them believed that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So if there were no other evidence, there's lots of evidence from the Old Testament. I could show you the prophets said so and all that. But if there were no other evidence than just the fact that Jesus said Moses wrote these books, uh, that, that would be enough for me. So, if, for instance, Matthew chapter 8, verse 4, when he healed the lepers, and this is the same account as in Mark and Luke, he told them to show themselves to the priest as Moses commanded. You know, Moses wrote Leviticus. Um, in Matthew 19, when they're talking to Jesus about divorce, um, he says, Moses allowed divorce because of the hardness of your heart, but it was not so from the beginning. He's talking about the, the writings of Moses. And I could go on through this. Romans 10, 5, Paul said, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. I could go and read these things. Um, my favorite quote uh, is the last part of Luke, where the road to Emmaus, where the two disciples, are walking on the road to Emmaus and Jesus appears to them, starts talking to them and they don't know it's Jesus. And then when he reveals himself to them, he says, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures concerning himself. So not only did Moses write the first five books of the Bible, but the, they point to Jesus. And he says so right there. Jesus interpreted to them the, the things that Moses had written uh, about him. Now, when Moses wrote these, these books, 
Um, more than likely, I can't prove this and we don't know it, but more than likely it was during the wilderness wanderings. That 40 years that they were wandering in the wilderness and Moses was writing these things. If that's so, it's probably around 1500, 1550 BC, right in there somewhere. Don't know that for absolute sure. But in the midst of, in the midst of this, one of the things that you see in Genesis, it's a book of beginnings. It's a book of, of course, the beginning of creation. Well, that's what we're going to look at. But it's also the book of uh, the beginning of <clears throat> the beginning of sin, uh, the beginning of the fall, I should say, the beginning of the nation, beginning of Abraham, the nation of Israel, God's uh, people throughout the throughout the rest of the Old Testament. So it's a book of beginnings and foundations. And what he shows us, what we're going to look at as we look at Genesis one one and, and the few verses following it, is we're going to see that. Moses is writing this, if we're accurate in saying that Moses wrote this during the wilderness wanderings, um, Moses was writing this um, while he was surrounded by pagan nations, while he was surrounded by all of these other nations, and all of these other nations had their own little creation myth. Uh, probably the most famous you may have heard of is the Babylonian myth, myth called uh, the Enuma Elish. And I'm not going to go into a big deal about that, but basically what it said was these two gods, Tiamat and Marduk, were fighting, and Marduk tore Tiamat in half, and half her body became earth, and half her body became sky. You know, and just things like that. And so uh, what you see in all of these creation myths from these pagan cultures is there's always these, these capricious gods always battling each other, always, always hypersexual stuff involved. But that's not what Moses wrote under the inspiration of the, of the Holy Spirit. He wrote, and we know it, that there is but one God. And he is an all-powerful God, and he created out of the abundance of his will, not by conflict, not by destroying a dark power, but simply by what we call divine fiat, by speaking, by saying, let there be, and there was. And so when, you, when we read this, what we see is that Moses presents this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I should say God presents it through Moses as being created out of nothing. Being created out of nothing. In the beginning, there was God. It doesn't say that. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. But the idea is, in the beginning, God already existed. And there was nothing else. Now, nothing is hard to comprehend for our minds, isn't it? Somebody give me a definition of nothing. Come on, think real hard. Huh? A vacuum. Is a vacuum nothing? No, a vacuum is something. It is something. It is something. So that's what, that's, what I want you to, that's what I want us to grasp before we even begin in the text. Now think about this. Now all of you have probably seen little videos about creation, you know, when the music's playing and it says, and God said, let there be light. And the light shine. You all seen those little videos, right? All those videos start with like space. And, you know, you see space go by and the stars. There was no space. There was no stars. There was no vacuum. There was nothing. Uh, a great philosopher, not a Christian philosopher, but a philosopher once said, nothing is what rocks dream about. <laughs> nothing is hard for us to comprehend. There was nothing. Nothing existed. The vacuum of space didn't exist. Space didn't exist. Time didn't exist. Stars didn't exist. There was nothing. Only God is, only God is eternal. And so 
God created not by forming matter together and getting this lump of matter over here and making it. He created by speaking something into existence. For before God created, there was no creation. That's hard for us to wrap our minds around. Try explaining that to an eight-year-old. That's a hard, that's a hard concept. But it is nonetheless true that there was nothing and God created. They call it, it's a Latin word, it's called ex nihilo. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. It means out of nothing. And so God created out of nothing. And so when we look at the text, having said that and laid that foundation, I want you to see why there are some people who dispute that. And I want to show you why they're wrong. In verse 1, what you have here in this verse that we all know so well is really just a literary introduction. It tells us what happened. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the totality of what took place. God created it, created the heavens, created the earth. And then he is going to, the, the writer, God through Moses, is going to explain to us how it came about. He's going to show us on day one, he created this. Day two, he created this. On day three. So that one verse, and it's really important that you understand that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is a literary introduction. And Moses is going to do this throughout the Bible. Throughout the Bible, he's going to show us uh, the, the book of Genesis is broken up into 10 sections. And each one of the, I hope I'm not boring y'all. I, I know this is like a little heady, but each one of these 10 sections is called, uh, in Hebrew, it's called a Toledoth section. And that word means generation. So 10 times you'll see these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. These are the generations of Noah. These are the generations of Noah's sons. These are the generations of Esau. 10 times. And so it's broken up into those sections. And every time you see that, you know that's an introduction to what's about to come. He'll say, these are the generations of Esau. And then he will list the genealogy of Esau there. These are the ge- He'll say it in chapter 2. If you just flip over and look at verse... Uh, is it verse 9? No. The heavens and the earth are finished. Oh, no, no. So God bless them. This is not my Bible, so I don't know. In chapter 2 somewhere, maybe it's 4. Verse 4? 3, 4. This is the history of the heavens and the earth. Some of your translations may say this is the book of the heavens and the earth. Or this is the, this is the um, generations of the heaven and the earth. Uh, and so each one of those introduces something. And so what you see in this first verse is an introductory. And the reason why I'm belaboring that point and making sure you understand that, because there are a lot of people who put a gap in between verse 1 and verse 2. There are a lot of people that say... Because if we read verse 2, it says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, what they'll do is they put those two verses next to each other, and they say, well, it says right here, He created the heavens and the earth. And so that assumes He created it out of nothing, which He did. But if you read the language in verse 2, it doesn't seem like He created out of nothing. It seemed like there was something there. He says, the earth... The earth was formless and void. And so he was molding it. He was making it into what he wanted to be. And what are these waters that the Spirit is, flow, is flowing over? So the, the, the theory is, and, and I, I disregard it, throw it in the trash, it's not worth thinking about. The theory is that God created a perfectly good world, and then somewhere between verse 1 and 2, the angels fell. We know that really did happen. And so God wiped out that whole thing and started over with the, with 
with the mass that was there and started reforming the earth. Um, that couldn't be further from the truth. What we're seeing here as we look at this uh, verses 1 and 2, um, we, we're seeing, well, let me ask you, let's do a discussion. Why the strange language? Why, if God created out of nothing, why does it say the earth was formless and void and the Spirit hovered over the waters? What are the waters? What is the earth that is formless and void if God created out of nothing? Anybody know? I don't expect you to know. It's a lot of people miss it. So I guess I'll just give you the answer then. <laughs> All right, I'm going to put a big word on you, but it's not really a big word. It's a word you already know. It's just two words put together. It's called phenomenological language. Okay, you know what a phenomenon is? Right. A phenomenon is something that happens. And logos or logi is the, the is a word, means word. So phenomenological language. And what phenomenological language is, is a big $8 word or whatever. All that is, is description of what is seen. Let me show you how we use this language every single day. What time does, you know, it's getting darker and darker later and later. I mean, it's 930 and I'm like, you know, it ain't even dark yet. What time does the sun go down? Anybody know? Just round about. 845, 9 o'clock. What time does the sun come up? 7.30, yeah. Is that true, what they just told me? Why is it not true? Huh? <laughs> right, well, I'm not talking about the time, but you're correct. The sun doesn't come up and the sun doesn't go down. The earth revolves around the sun. But we all understand what we mean when we say the sun came up at 7.30. Why? Because that's how it is seen. That's how it looks. Now, let me ask you again. Is it true that the sun came up? Yeah, it's true. We know scientifically the sun didn't actually rise, the earth, but we know that what he means is it became daylight at 7.30 this morning and it's going to be dark. He's using phenomenological language. It's, it's what is seen. And that's what we see here. So there are many people that will pick apart the story of Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, and they say, oh, how can this be true? How can that be true? But understand, if God were to write in Genesis 1 and 2 a scientifically adequate creation account for the modern man to understand, like he would say, okay, first the molecules got together and did this and then the atoms turned. And if he would have done that, the word of God would have been useless until now. The people that he was writing to needed the word of God and they understood what it meant when someone said, hey, the sun came up. They understood what it meant to describe what is seen. And so the way that you see this is the, the, the fact that, you know, even though we are, he is describing the way that it's, it's visualized for us, it does not mean that it's not true. It means that he is describing it in a way that not only modern man can understand, but all those ancient Israelites in 1550 B.C. could understand. God's Word is profitable and understandable, not just for our generation, but for every generation that's come before us. And it will be profitable for every generation that comes after us. 
And so if God were to make it, you know, scientifically palatable for atheist scientists to believe what it's written here, it would have been useless for those who didn't know what a molecule was for, you know, a thousand years or an atom was or, a, you know, the quasar, you know, moved and moons became, you know, even that kind of stuff would have been useless to them. So when he says here, he's describing what it looks like. He says, the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. He's describing chaos. He's describing nothingness. There's nothing there. It's formless. It's void. There's, there's nothing there. And when he says the Spirit hovered over the waters, it's a picture to the, Israeli, the Israel's mind of, of just chaos and nothingness. It didn't mean that there was actual H2O right there when God created. He's using this, this language to describe how God created out of nothingness. Out of chaos, God spoke and brought, um, superintended uh, the, the way creation came together. Are there any questions about that, comments? I'm going to prove to you and show to you just a moment that it is true, historically true. It's not, it is poetic in the sense that it's language that describes what's going on, but it is a historical fact. This actually happened. And if this didn't actually happen, then everything in the Bible is untrustworthy. So I'm going to show you that in a moment. But is there any questions about the, the way that language is phrased and how if... If he, would have, if he would have written it with modern scientific man in mind in order to convince him, then nobody else through the history of time would have understood God's Word or been helped by God's Word. Questions, comments? Y'all still with me? Everybody good? Okay. Okay, so it has to be this way. He had to write it this way in order for the Word of God to speak to those people who would never know what a molecule is or an atom or a quasar or, you know, outer space. Or, he had to write it this way, and he wrote it this way so that we too can understand. We can look at this and we can say, none of you have ever read a book where somebody said the sun came up and thought, that's not scientifically accurate. You know exactly what he means when he says the sun came up. You know what you're, you know what you're looking at. Now, as it is written, every generation can understand, but I, make, I want to make sure that you know that it is true and historical. We're going to read day one, he created this. Day two, he created this. It is true. It is historical. It is absolutely the way that God created. And it's in a language that all people can understand. From 2,000 years ago to 2,000 years from now, it's in a language that all people can understand. And you got to understand that it has to be historical. There are a lot of people, I remember being in college and the guy next to me was an old guy that was coming back to college. I mean, and he was really old in my mind. I mean, he's like 45 or something. And I was, you know, I was a young guy. And uh, we were in a philosophy class and I remember him saying, well now, Pretty much every, every real Bible scholar has, has said that the Genesis account of creation, it, it's just a metaphor. It didn't really happen that way. It didn't really happen in the way that it's written. Um, that's just not true. It happened exactly as it's written here. And if it didn't happen exactly as it's written here, then we have no gospel. We have no Savior. 
and we are dead in our sins. And I'm going to prove that to you in just a minute. If it's not true, then the whole gospel unravels. If Adam and Eve are not true, if they're just a metaphor of man, of Neanderthal man, the whole gospel unravels. If Adam and Eve did not sin in the garden, there's no need for a Savior. If, uh, if, if that is not true, then the whole Bible is false. And Jesus is a false teacher because Jesus believed in Adam and Eve. Jesus quoted Matthew 19. I said, when Jesus talked about marriage, He says, haven't you read that in the beginning He created them male and female, and for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and go and be cleaved to his wife? Jesus believed in, in uh, Adam and Eve. Paul believed in Adam and Eve. He said there was a first Adam that brought sin and death, and there's a last Adam. That last Adam is Jesus Christ who brings the... So if this is not true, if this is just metaphor, if it's just poetic language and we, we, we don't have to take it for literal truth, then the whole Bible is turned on its head and we might as well chunk the whole thing. Because Jesus believed it, the apostles believed it, the prophets believed it, all through Scripture it is quoted. So... Verse 3 and 4, we're probably not going to get past 5 tonight because I needed to lay all this foundation. So he says, The earth was formless and void, and uh, the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then he says, And God said, by divine fiat, that's what it's called, by speaking he created, Let there be light, and there was light. And so what you see is that, that's three, let me do four, first part of four. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, you would not believe how many things in those first five verses are disputed and con or said to be contradictory or denied by, by, I mean, even good seminaries. There's very few seminaries that you're going to send your kids to, your grandkids to, now that uh, are truly conservative Bible-believing seminaries. Even some, even some in our own denomination are swinging, swinging a little to the left. So um, it's very important that we understand. It's very important that we understand this. So the argument goes... God created light by divine fiat. He said, let there be and there was. The argument is, this can't be true because God didn't create the sun and the moon until day four. What's the answer to that question? His glory. His glory. Well, one of the answers, one of the possibilities is God himself is the light. We're told that in Revelation. No need for the sun and moon. God himself is going to be the light. That's absolutely true. What else? There's another one that's possible. You know? Maybe God just created light. You ever, I mean, you ever thought of that? Maybe He just created light. It's not beyond His purview. If we believe that He can speak the heavens and the earth into existence, it's not a, not a real big jump just to say He created light. But either way, the problem, is, the problem vanishes. The, the real problem is most of those who would hold to that are starting from a place of unbelief. They're starting from a place of unbelief and they're saying, well, let's just pick this apart uh, as best we can. And so, uh, to be honest, I don't know why people who call themselves Christians have a problem with the fact that God created light before He created the sun and the moon. But, but many do. But you need to also remember that he, he's, not, he's, not, he's, not giving this in, uh, he's not giving this in a way to prove His existence. The book of Genesis and the creation account never seek to prove God's existence. It assumes it. And the reality is that without God, there is no existence. 
it, it often tickles me, you know, when, when you talk to, I have several, they're not really my friends, but people that I'm acquainted with that I used to have discussions with in Tennessee that were atheists. Um, and uh, it, it always tickles me that they have to borrow from my worldview in order to argue anything. You know what I mean? So, for example, one guy, uh, this has nothing to do with this, but this is cool, so I want to tell you. Um, one guy said, he said to me one time, there is no God because of all the suffering in the world. Very common argument. Very common argument. Um, and so I said, well, why does suffering bother you? He said, because people shouldn't have to suffer. People shouldn't have disease and all these things that go on. And really, we, we went through a several different iterations of what the argument looks like, but it boiled down to this. Um, I said, I said, if I take your worldview that we're just animals, that we're just, you know, climbed out of the primordial soup and monkeys to every, you know, and all that took place, why should I care who suffers? I shouldn't, it don't matter to me. If your worldview is right and there is no God, then the best good that I can do is seek good for myself. And if something bad happens to somebody else, hey, that's just a lion eating a cheetah, man. I'm sorry. I shouldn't care. But he does care. Even this atheist, he does care. Why? Because he knows, whether he'll admit it or not, he knows man's in the image of God. He knows that it's wrong for a man to suffer or, or, or kill another man. No problem with a lion killing a zebra. We don't have no problem with that at all. But when a man kills another man, there's something inside of us that says, no, that's not right. We know that we're made in the image of God. And so what you see here is when he's talking about uh, creating light, God saw that, uh, that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. Um, when you hear this language, God created these things this way. God created light, but the sun and the moon don't come till later. We don't have to recon reconcile how it's uh, scientifically possible to have light without the sun. God is writing this in language that we can understand. God is writing this in language that those early Israelites could understand. And he distinguishes here in chapter, in verse 4 and 5, in the first day, he distinguishes day and night. So what he's doing here basically is creating time. So you have time created. He, he, he created a light to dispel this darkness and then set it the where it was supposed to be called the light day and he called the darkness night. And then you have evening and morning day one. And so what you see here is God, God creating light, God dispelling darkness with the light. And then you have God creating the time, the, the times and seasons we'll see, we'll see later on when he does create the, the earth and the moon. But he is sovereign over both. Most of the ancient Near Eastern peoples thought that there were two competing gods, one of darkness, one of light, one bad, one good, and they're struggling. No, Moses shows us that there's only one God, and he's sovereign over both darkness and he's sovereign over light. There were many that worshiped the moon and worshiped the sun during this time, and he shows us a little later on in the, on the fourth day, he said, no, God created the sun and God created the moon. And so... He says it was evening and morning, day one. Now, here we have another argument. And I'm getting these all out of the way so we can actually dig into the text next week. But what does it mean? What does day mean? Day one. He says it's strange. And we could talk about the linguistics of it. But day one, he says, he doesn't say first day. He says day one. 
And then every other day, second day, third day, fourth day, day one. What is a day? If somebody said to you, define the word day, how would you define it? 24 hours. 24 hour day. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, I believe that these are six, seven literal days. 24 hour days. And I'm going to defend that here in a minute. But let me just say this first. In the Hebrew Bible, the word day is used several different ways. It's used to describe the daylight hours, you know, like day, night. Uh, it's used to, of course, describe a literal 24-hour day. Uh, it's used to describe a special day, like, like the day of the Lord, you know, or the day of Yom Kippur, the day of, the day of whatever Kippur means. I forgot that word. Uh, it, with a preposition, uh, it can be, if it's used with a preposition like in that day, it could be an unspecified number of days. Like Jesus will say, in that day, this will happen or this will happen. Um, with the definite article, the day, that's how Hebrews, um, the Hebrew language uh, defines today. So it won't be today, it'll be the day. That means today. What do you think the Israelites who first read this thought a day was? So you're an Israelite. You're walking through the wilderness. Forty years, Moses is writing this and, and uh, through the inspiration of God. And he gets Genesis finished. And Actually, the first five books is really one book, the Torah. And he gets Genesis finished and somebody reads the first page. What would you think they would have thought when he says day? Yeah, a literal day, a real day. There are so many people here... Even Christians that disagree that say that a day here means a million years and that the second day means millions and millions of years. And it's these ages that in which God created. But what would the first readers understood? Would they have thought, oh, if he says day one, it must mean a billion years. Would they have thought that? No. What makes people today think that a day described in Genesis chapter 1 is a billion years or millions of years. What do you think makes... What, what do you think, where do you think that comes from? Does it come from the text? Yeah. What you see when you hear that is you see... What you're seeing is somebody importing their own assumptions into the text. Because the text doesn't say that. And nobody reading the text up until Darwin would have thought that. A day is a day. And I'll tell you that, I mean, you can really even, even prove that it was a day. I'll tell you why I can't take it to mean a million years. It's got to be a 24-hour day. It's got to be a real day. Several reasons. Um, if it's millions and millions of years on each day, day one's a billion years or how many ever years, day two's a bunch, then what you have is death before the fall. You have lots of animals dying. You have lots of you know, you have lots of trees dying. You have lots of, you know, presumably people dying. People that hold that usually don't think Adam and Eve were the first man and woman. You've got death before the fall. And that turns the Bible on its head. If you've got death before the fall, you don't have a Savior. Because you don't have a fall to save you from anything. Sin is not the cause of death. Because if you've got death before there was sin, the whole gospel goes out the window. So I can't hold that. It means that death would be part of God's good creation. And that's just not so. Um, the other thing is the passage ends in the text with, and it was evening and it was morning the first day. I don't know how you, I don't know how you twist that to make that mean a million years. 
It says it was evening and it was morning is the first day. I mean, that's pretty, pretty self-explanatory. You know, it's a pretty literal day. There's no doubt. And the third reason why I can't hold this millions of years is because Moses' name is mentioned in the, the Ten Commandments uh, when, uh, or, or this was mentioned in the Ten Commandments uh, in Exodus 20 where he talks about the Sabbath day, uh, keeping it holy. He said, because God created six days and then rested on the seventh. And that's the reason why you keep this day holy. And so the reason why you keep this day holy is because of the way that God created. And there's nothing in that text that would lead me to say, if if God created day one a million years, day two a million years, then that would make no sense in the Ten Commandments. God created six days and rested. So you, you, you work six billion years and then rest. Yeah, it would make no sense. The example that he uses is God creating on six literal days and resting on the seventh. And so what you see is, what you see here is God showing us through language that not only we can understand, but those people could understand and the people that come after us can understand what this creation from nothing looks like. Now, I want to say one other thing before we start talking questions and we... Um, discuss things. Um, it may have sounded like when I, when I was talking about these things that I'm saying to you, the Bible's true, throw science out the window. That's not, that's not the case at all. Science over and over again has proven the Bible to be true. So the Bible is not anti-science. It's not unscientific. The problem is every hundred years or so, science changes uh, and the Bible never changes. You know, so uh, the problem is that um, we, we, especially today, I guess I could use this as an example. You know, we have a theory of evolution that um, is just that. It's a theory. It's unproven and there's no evidence for it whatsoever. But it is, it is seen as scientific fact when the reality is there's no, there's no fact to it at all. I'll give an example. Um, we have, we have um, fossils of of you know birds and fish and all those things and in all the things that we found there has never been a fossil not one not one bone not one ankle bone not one not one fossil ever found of an animal that was in transition from one kind to another never it's either a fish or it's a bird or it's a dinosaur you know i do believe that we all believe there was dinosaurs they were part and parcel of the creation they were animals that lived at the same time man did you know there's cave paintings they found in archaeological sites where man is pictured with big dragons and stuff with them as well oh dinosaurs you know and dinosaurs went extinct you know animals go extinct every year you know different kind of animals uh, especially if they get left off the boat you know Noah's, Noah's flood but so I don't want you to think that what we're doing is we're chunking science out the window. Um, Science is a useful tool, but science is a fallible tool. This is an infallible tool. And so when science says this can't be true, 100% of the time, you can put your faith in this and eventually it will be proven true. And it's happened over and over and over again from, from 
you know, the earth being flat, you know, and it says in Isaiah that, you know, he puts his hand on the circle of the earth. And yet, yeah, it just over and over again, it's been proven. It's been proven true. And you have all of these scientists and, you know, you know, answers in Genesis that that um, organization, all of these all of these archaeologists, archaeologists and scientists, and they they believe the Bible and they see they see the truth of it. Questions, comments? Cries of outrage. I know we didn't get far in the text, but the, this first creation narrative is really important and we have to understand it. And I don't want you just to understand it. I want you to know that it's true. And I want you to know why you know that it's true. Um, so questions, comments? Yes. Well, let me do Miss... Uh, tell me your name one more time. Rayanne. Rayanne. I always want to say Leanne, but it's Rayanne. Go ahead. Uh-huh. And they going to try to repeat that for the folks watching on TV. That's very, said the, the five, what do you call them? The five true sciences. Five true sciences are represented in the first verse, Genesis 1-1. Yeah. That's awesome. Awesome. Jill? Uh, well, my question is why do you think God made light first? Why did he made light first? You know, that is a good question. I don't know if I can answer that question. Yeah, yeah. They said he is the light. The question was, why did God make light first? And the answer is, he is the light. What was the separation of light due to the third of the angels? That was the darkness that was thrown out of heaven versus the light, the glory of God in heaven. Well, that may be true, but we can't know that. That's, exactly. that's, reading, that's reading something that's not there. We know that the angels fell, but we don't know when and we don't know what that, what that caused. Yeah. That's right. That's a good answer. So, Jill, here you go. Marilla just answered your question. The reason light first, because the first thing that he did was set apart the day, day one. He made the day. And so on day two, he goes to create stuff. The first three days, God, it said the, it said the, the, the earth was formless and void. And the the first, all the days of creation is God's remedy for the formlessness and the void. The first three days, he's going to form everything, you know. And then the last three days, he's going to fill everything with, um, you know, animals, plants, and finally man at the end. And so it's, it's very interesting. And as we look through chapter 1 and 2 especially, chapter 3 is going to be the fall. Um, as we look through these first two chapters, what you're going to see is the foundation of the Christian worldview. 
I mean, you're going to see the foundation of man, his relationship to God, him being the image of God, marriage, sexuality. You're going to see the foundation of everything that we believe uh, encompassed in just these two chapters. And then the rest of the Bible is played out, uh, is playing upon these and showing us what they mean and how they work out. It's going to show us the remedy for the fall that happens in chapter 3 and how the promise of God uh, to bring the seed of the woman. You're going to have these two players, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and you're going to watch them all through Scripture. You're going to see this interplay and this this, um, antagonism between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman is going to pass by promise and inheritance from from Noah to to Shem to to Abraham to Isaac and Jacob. You're going to watch this promise pass on and on and on down through to down through to uh, all of uh, all of uh, Joseph's children. Is Joseph no Jacob's children? All of the twelve tribes of Israel, and then from those twelve tribes, you're going to see the promise passed to the one tribe of Judah and then Judah is pushed forward as the promise bearer and it's Jesus who comes out of the tribe of Judah and then you have the answer to where the seed of the woman comes from the beginning. It's pretty exciting stuff. So the Bible is not just a collection of stories that teach us how to be moral. It's not just, hey guys, let's be brave like David. Let's have faith like Abraham. I mean, those things are good, but the core story of the Bible is about God and His plan for redemption. In mankind. So that's what we're going to be learning. Okay? So let me cut this off and then we can talk some more if you guys want to. Father, we love you. We thank you today for who you are. We thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for giving us everything that we need for life and godliness. Thank you for giving us your word that equips us for every good work. God, we pray that you would help us as we, as we look through your uh, first book of the Bible. God, we, we pray, God, that you would just enlighten our hearts, that you would build us upon this, this worldview, God, that you would have us to see, uh, uh, have us to look through, and that you, would, um, that you would increase our love for you through it. We thank you, God. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.